Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Scientists have created light-up OLED tattoos that could tell you when to put on sunscreen or when your avocados have gone bad. The Twitter account tracking Geneva Convention violations in video games. And good news, scientists have confirmed that all of us suck at ending conversations with each other. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A team of scientists in Europe have created what they say is the first light-emitting tattoo using OLED-based technology, which is like the kind used in newer televisions and smartphones, especially the folding kind. And while, of course, this sounds totally awesome, if a bit frightening, the team mostly propose practical uses, like alerting an athlete when they're dehydrated, or indicating when someone should get out of the sun to avoid getting a sunburn. Tattoos for medical use are not unprecedented. I know a couple of people who have replaced their medical bracelets for conditions like diabetes with permanent tattoos on their wrists. And radiation therapy often tattoos small black dots on cancer patients' skin to use as reference marks for the machines. And a handful of counties in the U.S. tattooed kids with their blood types during the Cold War, thinking it could facilitate blood transfusions in the case of a nuclear attack. And yeah, that's a real thing that happened. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read more about it. And as sort of grim as that sounds to our modern ears, there are still proposals around tattooing people, including children, with their medical information. A team from Rice University a couple years ago developed fluorescent quantum dot tattoos that would only be visible through a custom smartphone app, at which time they would show a person's vaccination history, something particularly crucial in hard-hit rural areas where people sometimes don't have paper or digital vaccination records. And that one's actually a pretty good idea, even if it sounds a little big brothery at the offset. And unfortunately, because of that, it's gotten pulled into a lot of COVID-19 vaccine conspiracy theories, even though it's a tattoo, not in any way an implant or a microchip, and not in any way related to the COVID-19 vaccines, it's being cited by conspiracy theorists as evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines are implanting, tracking microchips into people. It doesn't help that the original study was proposed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. A lot of conspiracy theorists love to say that Bill Gates engineered the coronavirus or something. I only bring all of that up in case you hear about it in relation to this vaccine history quantum dot tattoo study. So now you can debunk anyone spouting that false claim. But anyways, back to the light up OLED tattoos. In addition to some practical wellness-related uses, the team also expects that they could be used for fashion purposes, like having a light-up tattoo or even fingernails, and they could even go beyond humans to be used on produce. The tattoos could go on packaging or on the fruit or vegetable itself to identify when it's gone bad. Now, if you're imagining how impractical it would be to take a tattoo gun to a tomato, I should clarify that these tattoos are applied more like a temporary tattoo is. Quoting University College London, The OLEDs are fabricated onto temporary tattoo paper and transferred to a new surface by being pressed onto it and dabbed with water. End quote. 
And now, as Gizmodo notes, quote, The idea of personally augmenting one's skin with glowing art isn't new either. But previously, this has involved biohackers implanting technologies like LEDs beneath the skin, and the results don't have much practical use besides attention-grabbing or inviting questions about why someone would do that to themselves. This new approach to light-emitting tattoos is easier to apply, more practical, and temporary, without requiring surgery to have it removed. End quote. So how does this one work? Well, the flexibility of the OLED display is key, so that it can move and bend along with the human, or fruit, skin. Beyond that, quoting again from Gizmodo, The actual electronics of the light-emitting tattoos, made from an extremely thin layer of electroluminescent polymer that glows when a charge is applied, measure in at just 2.3 micrometers thick, which according to the researchers is about one-third the diameter of a red blood cell. The polymer layer is then sandwiched between a pair of electrodes and sits atop an insulating layer, which is bonded to temporary tattoo paper through a printing process that isn't prohibitively expensive. The tattoos can be easily washed off when no longer needed or wanted using soap and water. With the current applied, the OLED tattoos in their current form simply glow green, but eventually could produce any color using the same RGB approach that OLED screens use. End quote. And while Professor Franco Sassioli, lead author on the study, notes that they've demonstrated a proof of concept that OLED tattoos can be made cheaply and at scale, there's still a number of kinks to work out. Like normal temporary tattoos, these ones degrade pretty quickly, especially when worn on a moving human, and they still need to figure out how to integrate them with a battery or supercapacitor. In the lab, they're currently hooked up to an external power source. So, OLED tattoos might not be coming to the public too quickly, but the technology is there, and it'll probably happen before long. If you're looking for a new Twitter account to follow that's lighthearted until you think too much about it, which might just be the best summary of all of Twitter, actually, you may want to check out at Geneva. Or, can you violate the Geneva Conventions? Don't worry, it's not some kind of account listing all the ways you can push the envelope on violence and torture. Rather, it analyzes video games and reports on whether various actions in them are Geneva Convention violations or not. The account, which is run by satirical punk site The Hard Times Gaming Vertical Hard Drive, began with broad strokes tweets, simply proclaiming various games in which you can violate the Geneva Convention. But it's evolved to explain exactly which articles games are violating so that followers can learn more and also start getting stark lessons on how we glamorize violence, policing, and military propaganda at times. Quoting Vice, Creator Giovanni Colantonio would pick a game out of the blue, often one without much violence, and work backwards to figure out how the game managed to violate the Geneva Conventions. The result was Colantonio spending half a day trying to figure out Pac-Man's war crimes. And it also opened the door to the account thinking more critically about gaming's complicity with glamorizing the fancy theatrics of war and laundering American military propaganda. Once we were actually looking at the specific articles, says Colantonio, that's when we'd say, wait a minute, white phosphorus is definitely a crime, and use Call of Duty to make a bigger satire about the real world. Video games are many things, but disproportionately, the medium prioritizes the player's active participation in mass violence, often wielding guns. 
Part of what Can You Violate the Geneva Conventions successfully pokes at is how player agency allows for seemingly atrocious acts to be demonstrated in games with peaceful aims. But games also encourage such egregious atrocities, successfully smuggling them in the guise of entertainment. Video games frequently act as Americans' public relations firm, but dang, the guns do feel real good. End quote. Like a lot of satirical work, Can You Violate the Geneva Conventions takes its job very seriously, despite the sometimes seemingly not-so-serious content. Though, in this case, the content is kind of growing more and more serious as it goes on. But if all of this sounds like a bit too much for your already doom-heavy Twitter feed, maybe try the account that inspired this one, Can You Pet the Dog, which lets you know all the video games in which you can pet the dog. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. If you've ever felt like you talked someone's ear off or been overly concerned about doing so, don't worry. Scientists have confirmed you're not alone. It turns out we're all awkward and really bad at figuring out when to shut up or when to keep talking. A study published today in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA, found that conversations rarely end when both parties want them to, whether because they go on too long or sometimes because they end too soon. Conversation is a little studied activity from a psychological standpoint, much has been studied by linguists and sociologists, but not so much when it comes to when people choose to say something or not. Quoting Scientific American, the research team quizzed 806 online participants about the duration of their most recent conversation. Most of them had taken place with a significant other, family member, or friend. The individuals involved detailed whether there was a point in the conversation at which they wanted it to end, and estimated when that was in relation to when the conversation actually ended. In the second experiment, held in the lab, the researchers split 252 participants into pairs of strangers and instructed them to talk about whatever they liked for anywhere from 1 to 45 minutes. Afterward, the team asked the subjects when they would have liked the conversation to have ended and to guess about their partner's answer to the same question. End quote. The researchers found that only 2% of conversations actually ended when both parties wanted them to, and less than a third ended when one party wanted it to. About half the time, both parties wanted to talk less than they did, roughly half the actual length of time. But the point at which they wanted to stop talking, their cutoff point, was typically different. But they also found that in 10% of conversations, both parties actually wished the conversation had kept going. And, less surprising to me at least, in roughly a third of cases, at least one person wanted it to keep going when it had ended. As you can probably tell from those numbers, the majority of participants failed at intuiting what the other person in the conversation wanted. When asked to guess when the other person in the conversation wanted to stop talking, participants were usually off by about 64% of the total conversation length. Talia Wheatley, a social psychologist at Dartmouth College who was not involved in the research, brought up a great point. 
The fact that we fail so hard at knowing how to end something that is otherwise such an, as she says, elegant expression of mutual coordination is probably why so many of us try to tie conversations to getting coffee or grabbing a drink, something that has a firm endpoint built in. And in my opinion, this could be one of the many reasons why virtual conversations feel so stilted. Either you make it very businesslike by having a calendar event and an agreed-upon time, communicating your hard stop to each other, or you try to keep it fun and casual, but inevitably one person will want to end the call before the other one. But thinking of conversations overall, Nicholas Epley, a behavioral scientist at the University of Chicago who was also not involved in the research, wonders if people who manage to end conversations right when they want to have a better conversational experience. Or do those that end too quickly miss out on some larger insights or more meaningful conversations? Maybe further studies with a bit more causal experiments can answer some of these questions and start probing better strategies for communicating when, why, and how we'd like to end conversations or keep them going. Yeah, I'm sure some expert conversationalists think they've cracked the code, but I wonder how their own findings would hold up in scientific study. Regardless, I find it reassuring to remember how awkward everyone else often feels. You know, we're just a bunch of bumbling meat sacks with a lot of feelings we don't know what to do with, and interacting with each other is a constant game of trial and error. Dr. Seuss Enterprises has announced today that they will no longer be publishing half a dozen Dr. Seuss titles due to their harmful and racist depictions of people of color. The included books are If I Ran the Zoo, McGilligot's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Eggs Super, The Cat's Quizzer, and And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Today is actually Dr. Seuss, or Theodore Geisel's, birthday, traditionally, but no longer officially, celebrated as Read Across America Day in schools around the country, so it's a pretty big move for the company to announce this on what is usually a kind of holiday for them. Though I will note that while these are some of his most overtly racist books, they're also some of the lesser-known ones. The Cat in the Hat, for example, has been criticized for its portrayal of the cat as allegedly inspired by minstrel performers in blackface and by Annie Williams, a black woman who worked in Dr. Seuss's publisher's building. But pulling perhaps their biggest title from publication seems to be further than the company is willing to go just yet. And either as a fun fact or to preempt any corrections I get about this, yes, the proper pronunciation of his pen name is apparently Soyce, Dr. Soyce, but seen as most people in the U.S. at least say Seuss, much like we say Van Gogh, despite that being a completely incorrect pronunciation, I thought I'd just stick with that for clarity's sake. Anyways, if you want to learn more about Dr. Seuss's complicated history and racist works, which go far beyond his children's books, the guys over at Stuff You Should Know did a great deep dive on the author a couple of years ago. And if you want a more in-universe-style report on this story, Vulture wrote the entire article in Seussian verse. Links to both of those in the show notes. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.